All right, I'm back to read our scripture for this morning, which comes from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. And it'll appear on the screens for you to follow along. Starting at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. The word of the Lord. What's going on, everybody? My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Very glad that you guys are with us here today on this beautiful summer morning. Hey, so a couple weeks ago, I went to Charlotte, North Carolina with some friends to hang out, and we were able to go to the National Whitewater Rafting Center and do a whole bunch of cool stuff that you can't do in the city. Uh, Of course, from the name of the title, we went whitewater rafting. Uh, My back is still sore. You couldn't have told me that I was not there going for the Olympic gold uh, in the whitewater rafting. Uh, We did some rock climbing, and at the end of the day, we did what I was looking forward to the most which was zip lining. You guys ever done zip lining? Yes, I was very excited. Uh, That was until I climbed the seven flights uh, to get there and I looked down and I saw all of the ground that separated, all that separated me from the ground. Now, I found out two things about myself. One, I am afraid of heights. I'm 35, it's okay, right? You could be afraid of stuff. Um, Secondly, (laughs) what was even more scary was there was some 15-year-old kid that was like checking his Snapchat that was the one responsible for my connection. (laughs) And I kept on asking over and over again, like, bro, am I good? Am I connected? He's like, yes, you're connected. And I was like, I'm gonna go. Wait, am I connected? And he was like, yes. There was a nine-year-old girl behind me sucking her teeth. I'm like, yo, shorty, stop. (laughs) I can be here all day. I'm just getting started. I ain't got no rush to, to get here. Up that high, it's, it's pretty easy. It's an easy sell to make sure that you're connected because literally your life depends on the connection. It wouldn't have mattered if uh, my feelings, if I felt like I was connected and I really wasn't. It wouldn't have mattered if the guy thought that I was connected, if he really felt deep down in his heart like, bro, I really feel like you're connected. The only thing that mattered was literally, was I actually connected to the line? Now, not only would the feelings not matter, but my intentions or his intentions wouldn't matter. Feelings don't matter. Intentions don't matter. The only thing that matters was whether or not I was actually connected. Now, in the scripture that Jessica just read, Jesus makes a similar claim. Uh, Not with zip lining and uh, some activity for fun or for sport, but with our spiritual lives. That life and death doesn't depend on your feelings or on your intentions. It depends on your connection. What are you connected to? Uh, What are we attached to? 
Now, in this scripture that Jesus reads, uh, Jesus gives us, it's uh, about 24 hours before he's about to be crucified, and it's one of the most important conversations that he could ever have with anyone, and he's pressing us that what he wants for our lives is not just something that resembles life. Uh, It's not something that uh, is just a, a set of rules, but Jesus wants us to have real life with God. And that life, and our life in, or death depends on what we're connected to. Do we have a living, breathing, thriving relationship with God, connected to God through Jesus? And is that bearing fruit? Now, the scripture starts off uh, with Jesus saying some pretty strong statements. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, in this scripture, I've mentioned over the weekend that this is one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible because I don't know that I walk away as challenged and as uh, perfectly directed as I do when I walk away from reading this scripture. Uh, Jesus gives us a picture of what it looks like to actually have a life with God. Not something that looks like life, but something that actually is a real, breathing, healthy, vibrant, thriving life with God. Now, the, the terms that Jesus uses aren't ones that we use all the time. Uh, words like fruitfulness and vine and branches, these are not things that we talk about on a, on a daily basis. Uh, but Jesus' crowd knew exactly what he was talking about when he was mentioning these images. Now, essentially, this is what Jesus is talking about. There's a lot of different ways that can motivate your behavior. There is a lot of pressures that you can face that will make you act one way or another. But what Jesus is after in our lives is us growing from the inside out, that there is a vital and deep connection that you have to God that is causing significant changes in your life that start from the inside out, not the other way around. Over in the scripture, as soon as we talk about uh, something like being fruitful, the first thing that I think about is what do I have to do in order to be fruitful? And if you're like me, if you're a practical person, you say, great, now what do I have to do to be what Jesus is calling me to do here in the scripture? And if that's you, I want to tell you to slow down a little bit. Much more important than what Jesus is calling us to to do in this scripture is more so what he's calling us to be. And I don't want our doing to replace our being. And this is the most significant part of of the scripture. So what does it mean to abide in Jesus? This all sounds like some religious uh, phrases. Uh, What does it mean to remain in him? What does it mean to bear fruit? What do all these things mean? Uh, I want to first start out with what I know it does not mean. Uh, And I think this is really helpful to put in context. um, Changes in our life that are driven uh, by fear or driven by external forces where we feel forced to do something and it changes our behavior. Jesus is not after that. Jesus is after a real heart change through a brand new internal life not some compliance you have because you're afraid of him. Now, let me give you guys a quick example. Um, I see this uh, pretty often. Uh, There'll be a couple that's in distress, and uh, they come to me, and I'll get an email in my inbox, and it will say something like, hey, you know, my wife and I are really struggling, 
And honestly, she's thinking about leaving me. I'm doing a ton, ton of, you know, admittedly, I'm not doing the greatest job as a husband. Um, and then when they get to the office, uh, we start talking. She runs down all the list of terrible things that he's doing. Uh, he's not emotionally available. He doesn't listen. He's always out with his friends. He's a Knicks fan. And she goes down just <laughs> this terrible list of people, uh, of things that make a person. And what happens 99% of the time is the guy says, hey, I didn't know it bothered you that much, but I can change. Give me a chance. Give me a chance to change. They go home. I'll check back in a couple of months later. Things are still going well. And either one of two things happens. Uh, the first is that after a couple of months, when he's no longer afraid of her leaving him, he just kind of goes back to doing the exact same thing that he was doing in the first place. Once he's like, she ain't going to go nowhere. You know, we just got this apartment. My credit is better than hers, so she can't even get nothing on her own. Right? Once he starts to have all these things, then his motivations unravel. But his real motivations from the beginning were never to actually become more one with his wife. It was fear. It was an external situation, a threat of her leaving, that made him change his behavior. Now, the only hope that that couple has for a real, happy, healthy marriage is not her scaring him again with more stuff. It's that he would come to value the things that she values, and they would value life together, and intimacy, and openness, and honesty, and all these different things. Now, I want to be really gentle when I say this, because uh, one of the privileges I get as a pastor is I get the chance to talk to people uh, all over the world about their faith, and I, I could be in a bar talking to people, uh, and what normally comes up is their relationship with God. As soon as I say I'm a pastor, they start telling me all about their relationship with God. And what I hear a lot is, I used to be a Christian, but now I left. And I want to be really gentle when I say this. What most people mean when they say that is, I grew up in a Christian household, and my parents or my grandmother forced me to do a whole lot of stuff. They made me go to church, or the church I was at was really hardcore, and they scared me. They scared the hell out of me, quite literally. They just had me terrified that if I, if I turned to the left or if my pants were too tight, I was going to go to hell. And then they get out of their household or they get out of that church and then they realize that God is not standing out with a lightning bolt striking people for doing bad things every day. So slowly but surely, their Christian character starts to unravel. And then before you know it, they have left the church. But what they have left was not a thriving relationship with Jesus. What they have left was not a connection to God. What they left were the external forces that were being applied to their lives to make them change their behavior. Now, in this scripture of John 15, and we see Jesus talking about what and describing what a life with God looks like, it is a life of God's spirit and your life melding, that we are the branches, God is the vine, and we are receiving spiritual vitality and life from God, and it is changing us, it is shaping us, and it is actually bearing fruit in our lives. It's having an effect on, in us. And this is the type of transformation that doesn't come from you being afraid. It doesn't come from you having the checklist done really well. It comes from God's spirit living inside of you, producing inside of you a real love for God and a real love for people. You can't manufacture a love for God. I don't care how hard you work. As a matter of fact, Jesus' fiercest opponents, the Pharisees, these were some of the best behaved people. And what does Jesus tell them? Hey, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, they had all of this religious activity, but it was no spiritual vitality. They were in the right place, but their motivations 
weren't right. So as we see Jesus unpack um, this scripture, uh, he's warning us against a, a number of things and things that I, I don't want us to, to miss out on uh, because us having a real relationship with God, having a real spiritual life depends solely on our connection to God, to Jesus. So Jesus uses imagery. So the first thing we see is a warning uh, against a superficial connection to Jesus. In John 15 and 2, we see that we need a real, not a superficial relationship to Jesus. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what your deal is. I don't know how you wound up in a church uh, today. I don't know how you stumbled here, whether you're just hanging out with friends and this is the only way you would do brunch later is that they made you come to church. What I would hate for anybody in this room to have, and this is especially true for people who've been going to church for a little while, I would hate for you to walk out of this place having a superficial but not a real connection to Jesus. Man, I would break my heart. If you thought that what you were doing was uh, exactly what God wanted you to do because you had a, a bunch of religious activity, but you didn't really have any spiritual vitality, man, that would be a, a huge loss. And Jesus routinely warns against people having a superficial attachment to God. Verse 2, we see it says, uh, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now, I got to admit, verse 2 starts off with a pretty big punch, saying that Jesus, uh, the gardener, rather, God the Father, cuts off every single branch that bears no fruit. And I was doing a lot of research on this and thinking, like, man, that's pretty intense that God would just cut, uh, cut people off. And as the more research I did, I, I, I really saw Jesus' heart in all of this was Jesus, over and over again throughout the New Testament, warned people against having a superficial attachment to God that in reality was never a real attachment in the first place. In Mark 11, 12 through 14, uh, you see a story where Jesus, it says the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree uh, in leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, there's one of two explanations for why Jesus would do this. One, Jesus is just really into figs, right? Like, he just really loves fig newtons. That's his snack. And he's like, he goes to the bodega. They don't have it. And he's like, may no one ever buy a bacon, egg, and cheese from you ever again. <laughs> the more plausible and uh, far, more, uh, far better answer is uh, what Jesus is pronouncing over this fig tree is that this fig tree has a decaying dead, uh, is decaying and is dying on the inside. Now, in the ancient Near East, fig trees, for those of you who don't live in uh, modern-day Syria or Iraq or anything like that, uh, fig trees had two seasons where they would bear fruit. Uh, now, the first type of fruit that they would bear was like the small fruit that would happen at the same time the leaves were coming in. And then after that, the bigger figs would be on the tree. And Jesus was a far way away, and from the outside, he walks up on this tree, and it looks like it has all of these beautiful green leaves. So his natural assumption is that there is life flowing to this tree. He gets up to it, and he doesn't see any figs. The tree is not doing the one thing that it's supposed to be doing. And Jesus uh, curses the tree or pronounces that this tree is dead. All Jesus was doing was announcing what had already happened on the inside. For a tree to not bear fruit means that there was something wrong with it. It was decaying. 
It was dying. And this was a metaphor for a lot of Jesus's religious opponents, these Pharisees. On the outside, they had these leaves. On the outside, they had the uniform of uh, spiritual piety. But on the inside, they were dying. Jesus made some really, really hard statements against the Pharisees. One of them was he called them whitewashed tombs. He's saying, you guys have cleaned the outside of these tombs, but on the inside, there's a dead body. Jesus routinely warned against superficial, superficial spirituality. And here, when he says that every branch that doesn't bear fruit is a sign that there is something decaying and dying about that connection, and that, that branch is better off cut off. Now, all throughout Scripture, uh, we, we don't only see Jesus uh, giving warning against superficial spirituality, but much more importantly, much more importantly, we see that Jesus wants you and I to have a real connection with God. He only warned against the superficial spirituality because he wanted us to have the real thing. And actually, the story of Christianity is that God has come to us in the form of Jesus to give us that real connection. Now, there's a few things that we have to know in terms of how do we actually get a life and how do we actually receive uh, this life in Jesus, this, this new life that comes from the inside out. And here's the first thing that you got to know. If you don't know anything else, if you Falling asleep the entire way, and you're about to take slip back into the, another nap. Just listen to this part right here. It all rests on the fact that God came to us and not the other way around. All throughout Scripture, we see uh, statement after statement, story after story of what God has done to come to us so that we would have a relationship with Him, not the other way around. And I don't want us putting the cart before the horse because if you do that, and this is me speaking from personal experience you will have a miserable relationship with Jesus. Because if there is something that you had to do to woo God, to make, you, to make him love you, then you're always going to be uh, living with the threat that you didn't do that one thing good enough, and then God will leave. Now, the essence of religion is that there is a chasm between us and God. And every other religion says, hey, but if you do this dance, if you wear this hat, if you eat this food, if you don't do this, if you don't do this, then that will bridge the gap. Christianity starts on the other way. It says that Jesus himself has come to be the bridge. We just read the scripture in Philippians uh, last series, Philippians 1 and 6. It says, being confident of this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. It is God that has begun the good work in us. It is God is the one who has taken not just the first step, the first 197 steps toward us. And that is the foundation of a real thriving relationship with God. And if you want to have a, a, a great, dying, decaying relationship, then put yourself as a center, as a person who has sought after God first. And everything that flows after that is not going to be a love and an adoration for God. It's going to be the opposite. So he comes to his own. As a matter of fact, in John 1, 11 through 13, we see what it takes um, for us to really receive God uh, in our lives and to really have this deep connection with him. Uh, John 1, 11 through 13, it says, he came to that which is his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus came to his own. That is a statement that all the philosophers in all the world could not unpack enough, that God in his infinite nature comes to us, not the other way around. Now, when I was in fifth grade, uh, I went on a, a trip to Philly, 
And uh, my friend and I just decided just for like two seconds, we're going to dip out and grab a pretzel. Pretzels in Philly are allegedly good. I don't think they're as good as New York. That's a whole other conversation. So we dipped off and went to get a pretzel. By the time we turned around, our group had gone far away. We had no idea where they were. And instead of staying right there, which we probably should have done, we went like in the night in the opposite direction, looking for the crowd. I have a terrible sense of direction, so we were getting more and more and more lost and getting farther and farther away from the group. And after about a th 30 minutes, it actually was like, yo, I think this is it. It's time to, you know, take my knuckles up. It's going to be me and you on the streets. Like, this is, ain't nobody coming for us. About a half hour later, I saw the greatest sight that I have ever seen in my life. It was a principal from the school coming around the corner. When I saw that dude... It was like I was Arnold from Different Strokes and he was Mr. Drummond. I ran up to that dude, wrapped my legs around him. It was like, I have never been as happy to see another human being. You want to know why that was? Because I was lost. And I had nothing on my own to add to my finding. I was helpless. I was afraid. I was in desperate need. And then someone found me. Do you want to know why? It's so important that we know that God is the one who came to us and came and found us because you'll never develop a love of God and a love for other people if you're thinking that you found God and not the other way around. Nobody in here has ever found God. God was never lost. It was God that has come to us, and if this is not the foundation for our relationship, everything else after that will lead in decay. There's scriptures over and over again in the Bible. One of them is my memory verse. I've said it a hundred times. Uh, Romans 5 and 8. And it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. This is how God demonstrates his love for you. This is how God demonstrates his love for me. While we were still sinners, while we were still a far way off, while we didn't deserve anything, Jesus came and he died for the ungodly. It is God that came to his own and you and I are not in a position to take any credit for anything. Now, the response to Jesus coming to us is something we see in this verse uh, of John 1. Uh, it says, uh, to those who received him and believed on his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And there's no higher title in the entire planet than a child of God. There's no higher title. There's no higher name. There's nothing better than that one statement, to be a child of God. And we get that from receiving Jesus and believing in his name. And those are somewhat difficult theological concepts in and of themselves. Uh, what does it mean to receive Jesus? I don't know the, the full answer to that. Uh, but I would think that um, one of the best ways to explain it is imagine if I showed up in your apartment with an elephant, like a legit elephant stomping through, uh, tail wagon, trunks and all of that different stuff. If I let an elephant stay in your apartment, if it would even fit, it would break the door jam up. If I let him just stay there for the afternoon and let him walk around, he would destroy your furniture, he would rip everything up, your couch would be done, uh, it would be a, a complete disaster. Everything in your house would have to get rearranged because there was an elephant in there. You can't just leave it out the same way it was before. Now imagine receiving the magnitude of God in the flesh coming into your life. What would that look like? What would it look like if God came into your life? God is much bigger than an elephant. Now, I don't know the full answer of what it looks like, but I know it would rearrange some stuff in our lives, and it would rearrange some furniture. It would rearrange our mindset about a lot of different things. And while it wouldn't happen immediately, 
there certainly will be some difference between our life before and after. So to receive Jesus means that there's kind of actually not limitations. And listen, I try to put Jesus in the box in my life every day. I still do it every single day. Uh, And we all try to put limitations on God. But to receive Jesus means to accept him and let him rearrange the furniture in our lives. Let him challenge you in areas that you don't want to be challenged in. To let him be Lord and Savior, not just your Savior. Later it says, and to those who believed in his name. And I was thinking like, man, like to believe in his name, it has to mean something more than like, well, his name wasn't Luther. It was Jesus, right? Like that was, that's not a hard sell to say historically his name is Jesus. Uh, I think it meant to believe in the, the weight of what his title actually represented. When Renaissance first started, we got audited by the IRS. And I don't even like check voicemails often, but I just so happened to check this one voicemail and I heard, hi, my name is so-and-so from the IRS. I called that dude right back. Listen, I saw what they did to Wesley Snipes. They threw my man Nino Brown in prison. I'm not built for that. I'm not. I like my freedom. I called that dude right back immediately, and I was stuttering on the phone like, what do you want? And he was like, hey, when can you meet? I said, you tell me, Papa. You tell me whenever you want to meet, that's when we're going to meet. I got it all. I'll show you whatever you need to see. Now, essentially, what I was doing was believing on his name. I knew what his name represented. I knew what was behind it, the IRS. I knew what they could do to me. I knew what would happen if I just treated him like he was a regular dude that I could just easily discard. I think that to receive Jesus and to believe on his name means that we give his name the appropriate weight in which it deserves. That if we call Jesus Lord and Savior, that those titles, those words, actually have a magnitude in our life and we treat it differently than we would just someone that is that easily discarded. So we see that the result of God coming to us is us receiving Jesus and uh, believing in his name, and that leads to a, a real connection. And I would hate for anybody to walk away from here unsure of what your connection to God really is. Uh, after service, we have pastors that would love to talk to you up front about what it would look like for you to place your faith in Jesus. Now, not only that, that's not where uh, the scripture ends, uh, what it looks like to have a real relationship with God, what it looks like to really bear fruit. But in order for us to really bear fruit, not only do we need a real connection, but this is the part that I don't like, we need to be pruned. Growth in life is a gradual process. And what I would hate for you to think is, man, I really have these areas in my life that are not great. So it must mean that I'm a fake Christian or it must mean that I, really, I didn't really get the whole I didn't get the real Jesus. I just got like diet Jesus, right? Uh, I would hate for you to think that because there are areas in your life where you're not mature, you don't have the real thing. Uh, In our lives, God takes immature people and he prunes us. I mentioned this in Bible study a couple weeks ago. Up until maybe five years ago, I had been a Christian for a long time and uh, I was never really generous with my money. I was generous with people that I liked, but I wasn't generous with the church. That when it was time to make cutbacks or I needed some extra cash to go on vacation, the first area I would cut back on was giving to the church. And I was a real Christian, I would like to think at least. Uh, I had a real relationship with Jesus that was growing and thriving, but there were just some areas in my life that were immature. And there's probably a long list of areas to this day that I still am immature. And for that reason, God prunes us. We see in verse 2, it says, Every branch that does bear fruit 
right? These are healthy, alive, and living branches. He prunes, God prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. Every living, breathing Christian that is connected to Jesus, God doesn't leave you the way you are. In order to see fruit happen in our lives, God prunes us. Left to themselves, healthy branches, uh, they get tangled and they grow in a lot of, they grow a lot of bad grapes instead of smaller numbers of really good grapes. They get uh, in their own light and they block out what they need to thrive. It needs help to grow in the right directions. So God, being a good father and a good gardener, steps in with the shears and he painfully enters our world and he cuts away stuff that we thought we needed. And that's the pruning process. Now, pruning happens at the hands of a skilled gardener with a sharp instrument, cutting away stuff that the plant thought that it needed. Now, here's something that's so amazing about this that I didn't realize until this week. Jesus is giving us a promise of a couple of things here. And the first is that the gardener, God in this metaphor, is never, close, is never closer to you at any point in your life than what he is when he's pruning away in your life. You cannot prune from across the room. You cannot prune from across the country. You have to get up close and personal. And I've made the mistake in my life that thinking that pruning meant distance, and the opposite is true. Pruning means proximity, that God is near, God is close. And even though God might be cutting away things that are incredibly painful for us to experience, it doesn't mean that it is without reason, and it certainly doesn't mean that God is distant from us. In the last six months to a year, uh, I've realized a couple just areas of my life that were not um, the way I know God wanted to be. I just realized a lot of pride in my own life, and um, not pride like in the sense of just, I think I'm better than someone else, but just presumption that I can fix stuff on my own. So slowly but surely, I would just rely on what I could do to fix things, and I was not really praying a lot. Now, I don't know what the perfect job description is for a pastor, but I can tell you what a terrible one is, and there's a pastor that doesn't pray. And slowly but surely, I started to see prayer crowded out of my life with worry and strategy and meetings and all these different things, all of this activity, and the spiritual vitality of my life was actually being choked out. And over the last six months to a year, I've, I've felt painful things disappear and people disappear from my life, and it always hurts when God prunes, when God... Uh, removes things from you that you thought you needed to survive. And here's what I want to say. If you are in a season where you feel like God is pruning you, I don't want you to think that he's distant, number one. And number two, wait until you give the verdict of how good uh, God's actions are in your life right now. Don't give the verdict right now. Wait a year, two years, however many years. Wait until you see the fruit that it develops. Waiting to see if what God is doing in your life right now is actually exposing you to more light. Wait to see if what God is doing right now is actually producing deeper dependence on him. Wait to see if what God is doing in your life is actually clearing out the way of a lot of fluff so that you can actually see who he really is and depend on him in the realest way that you have ever, ever depended on him when everything else has been taken away from you. Just wait and see what that fruit is in the end. I would hate to walk away uh, angry at God because of his pruning when the pruning is the most loving and close thing he could have ever done for me. No parent would ever let his child go undisciplined. 
And for whatever reason, we would love to think that God can just let us go throughout life without ever having to course correct us and sometimes let us cry it out a little bit. But it is God's good nature and good intentions for our life to see us actually go, grow fruit, real fruit that lasts. And the last thing that we see in the scripture is that you and I need to remain in him. We need to remain in him. Jesus tells his disciples a, a reminder that I want you to walk away with. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. The branch is wholly dependent on the vine. If it is disconnected from the vine, it will not have any life or vitality to it. Now, Jesus is not talking about a place in terms of remaining in him. Uh, it's great to come to church, um, but he's not talking about a geography. He's talking about a spiritual connection to him, remaining in that place, in that posture. A baby in her mother's womb is in the perfect place, but if that umbilical cord gets messed up, even though it's in the perfect place, if the connection is not right, it's not going to grow. It's not going to thrive. It will be in for a world of trouble, and Jesus is calling us to remain in him. And I've thought about it this whole week. You know, what does it look like to remain in him? What does it look like to, to, to have this vital connection with him? And what do we need uh, to do in order to have that? And I think uh, it's a couple of things. The first is I think we need to fight to be in community. Uh, and by community, I don't mean friends that you like to hang out with that you can go to brunch with. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who actually know the real you. It doesn't have to be a million people. People who know the real you and they're connected to you. And they can remind you when you're getting out of pocket. They can encourage you when you're down. And here's why this is so important. I don't know if you guys ever watch the nature shows, um, but whenever you see a lion about to attack, he always separates before he attacks. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5 and 8 that your enemy, the, the devil, roars around like a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. And this is what he does. He separates first, then he attacks. You are at your most vulnerable when you are disconnected from the body. Now, I don't know what type of um, situation you have. I don't know if this is your first time in church or if you've been around for a while, but you need people that know the real you and people who can challenge you and encourage you when you're down. But the second thing we do is to stay connected, and this is something that I need this and I struggle with this even now, is our private disciplines, times where we set aside intentional time to spend with the Lord in prayer and in reading our scripture. And this is one of the reasons... We continue to beat that drum of this community Bible reading, the CBR. They'll be out in the back at the end of service if you don't have one. Uh, it's the way that you and I can slow down and be intentional every single morning to make sure we, remind, we are reminded of the gospel and all of God's promises for our lives and to not let that get crowded out of our lives. And the last one is something that we're going to do right now. It's corporate worship. It's a time where we come together and we witness uh, among one another what God has done and we sing songs together and we cry out to God together and we approach God and we confess our areas of need and we invite God into our lives to continue to breathe in us. We invite God into our lives to shape us. We invite God into our lives as we receive him. Now in just a moment, uh, the band is going to come up and they're going to lead us in a song, and as soon as I'm done praying, uh, if you're, I don't know if you've ever stood up a day in your life to sing a worship song, but I would love it if you would join us standing.
uh, and sing along with us. And let these words of this song be the words of your heart. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, you know all of the ways that I would uh, gladly not remain in you. And I'm so grateful for every opportunity I have to be um, just reminded to remain reminded of your love, reminded of your care, reminded of your grace, reminded of your spirit that leads us towards you. So God, I pray that you would um, lead us to encounter you and to have a rhythm with you that is life. Because our life depends on our connection with you, God. God, will we see how good you are and how much you love us? We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.